Now please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. And we will be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him once again to bless his word to us this evening. Father in heaven, Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray you'd pierce our hearts with it and that you'd heal our hearts uh, with your gospel. Bless us, Lord, as we consider your word together now. May it come to us, not in word only, but also with power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we have great love for someone or tremendous respect for someone, we want to please that person. And we studiously avoid displeasing them. And that's true generally, uh, true of people of all ages and in all different circumstances. But an early manifestation of, of that, that desire to please and to avoid displeasing someone that we love and respect, is manifested in children and in the relationship with their fathers. Small children especially have a tendency to kind of hold their dads in sort of awe. And you've seen it. Um, And if that relationship between father and child is a healthy one, children earnestly desire the approval of their father, don't they? They crave that. And they dread the thought of angering him. And it's not that they're afraid of their fathers. I mean, again, if it's a healthy relationship, children won't be afraid of their dads. But the idea of offending him is a fearful thing. And I think that's a kind of an apt description of what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord, as, as we read about it in Scripture, and as Scripture puts it forth to us, is somewhat like that, that relationship of a of loving child 
to his or her father. And this passage tonight from Ecclesiastes speaks of that very thing. It speaks of the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. Ecclesiastes 5 begins with observations about worship. These first seven verses, um, by and large, are about worship. They speak of going to the house of God, and they speak of vowing vows, making of vows. And both of those things, in biblical context, uh, refer to exercises of a religion. They're exercises of religious faith. And we live in a culture uh, that seems to think that our religious exercises are somehow doing God a favor, like we're helping him out, or we're doing something, some good deed for him or to him by our religious uh, exercises, going to church or doing whatever. And so in a culture like that, it feels like, you know, we're helping God out when we go to church, or aren't I, aren't, God should look uh, kindly upon me because look what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going to his house. Uh, in a culture like that, it might come as a surprise that we have warnings in this passage. We're told in the beginning of this chapter, yes, you should go to the house of the Lord. You should go to the house of God, but be cautious. And if you make a vow, you better pay that vow. Because when it comes to these kinds of things, the old adage, it's the thought that counts, is not applicable. In these situations, it's not the thought that counts. It's are you going to do what you vowed to do? Are you going to pay that vow? So I say this passage is about the fear of the Lord. I titled the sermon, The Grace of Holy Fear. It'll become more clear a little bit later, why I chose that title. But as it speaks of the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, I think what we can take from this text is that Christian faith, real Christian faith, makes us fearful of offending our Heavenly Father in thought, word, or deed. Not in a servile kind of fear, but like that loving child who wants to please his or her dad, his or her father, and, and recoils at the thought of offending him. That's the way Christian faith is, because Christian faith and, and the fear of the Lord are essentially synonymous. They're the same thing. Christian faith makes us fearful of offending our Heavenly Father in thought, word, or deed. The three points I want to look at tonight are all uh, stated in terms of imperatives. I think these are lessons we can draw from the text, so each of the points, in a sense, is an application. But we're going to talk about uh, knowing your place, and then minding your words, and then fearing the Lord. And that's where we're going with this text this evening. So first of all, know your place. The text uh, begins with... The words, guard your steps. You know, when we use the expression from time to time, watch your step, when we're trying to caution somebody in a situation uh, where that might be dangerous or that could cause them some sort of harm, we say, watch your step, and we mean exercise caution. Be careful in your actions. Be careful in your words. 
as you enter into this or that scenario. But the text says, guard your steps. And specifically, when are you to guard your steps? When you go to the house of God. Now, does that come as a surprise to you that he would say that? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God? Because it is true. It's true, and I want to emphasize the fact that, yes, God is our loving Heavenly Father, and we are His dearly beloved children. That's beyond dispute. It's beyond dispute from Scripture itself that God is gracious, and He is a God who's full of compassion. He is a God who pities us. He really does. He condescends to us. Although He's high and lifted up, He meets us in our lowest state. That's the kind of God He is. And beyond all that, He is a God who delights to hear us pray. All these things are true. He delights to hear you sing His praises. And He's a God who, although our praises and our worship are are far inferior to what He deserves, He accepts our worship anyway. He accepts our worship in Christ Jesus. All of that is true. And it's been true not only for God's people under the New Testament times, but it was always true of all of God's people in the Old Testament as well. All of those things. But God is also holy. God is transcendent. As the text puts it, God is in heaven, you're on earth. When Isaiah saw the Lord and recounted that in chapter 6 of his prophecy, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And our God is that. He's high, he's lifted up. He inhabits eternity. And our relationship with God has to embrace both of those realities. The nearness and the love and the compassion and the mercy and the fatherly affection of God, but at the same time, the holiness and the glory, the majesty of our God who is high and lifted up. And if our focus... If we lose sight of one and focus only on the other, for instance, if we tend to focus only on God being high and holy and being other and and being transcendent, we'll tend to live under something of an oppressive dread of God. But if we revel in His mercy and His compassion and His pity and His condescension and how much He loves us as our Heavenly Father without a sense of that holiness that is also very much a part of who He is, then we have a tendency to become cavalier in our relationship with God. We have a tendency to become presumptuous in our relationship toward Him. And that is Solomon's concern with this passage tonight. Because we're far too prone to presumption. Which is why he says, the wicked don't know that they're doing evil. It's better to draw near to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that 
they are doing evil. So when he says, guard your steps, what he's saying is, remember who you are and remember who God is. That's why also in verse 2, he says, God is in heaven, you are on earth. That brings out a very important theological concept that all Christians really need to, to get hold of and to remember. And that's what we call the creator-creature distinction. Again, God is near to us. He's near to us as, as our Heavenly Father, and He loves us as His children, but He's still God. He's still high and lifted up. He's still holy. And He always has been and always will be. Do you remember when Jesus gave instructions to His disciples, and He said, when someone invites you to a feast... He says, take the lowest place when you go and sit down. And he tells, he kind of paints the picture of a person who goes and sits up in an important seat. And then, then the master of the feast comes in and says, make way for this other person. And, and so that person who kind of took a higher seat kind of has to go with shame to take the lowest place. He says, when you go, take the lowest seat. And you never know. Somebody might come and say, friend, come up and sit here in this better seat and you'll have honor in the sight of all. Jesus was uh, teaching us not to presume. He was teaching us to know our place. I think of the term steward. We, we talk about, we even pray about uh, stewarding our, our uh, afflictions, stewarding our illnesses, and the Christian life is a life of stewardship. And the thing about a steward is, on the one hand, it's a position of responsibility and honor. But on the other hand, by its very definition, a steward is someone who's below someone else. That's brought out really uh, beautifully and, and artistically in, in one of those Lord of the Rings movies where Gandalf goes into the presence of Denethor, who's the steward of Gondor. And when he first walks into the throne room, there's no king, of course. That's why Gondor has a steward. And Gandalf says, Hail, hail Denethor, steward of Gondor. It's an honorable title. But then after conversing with him for just a little while, he figures out Denethor's gotten too big for his britches. He figures out that Denethor thinks he's the king. He thinks Gondor doesn't need a king, and he just wants to be comfortable there on the throne of that kingdom. And then Gandalf dresses him down and calls him steward, but he, the tone in which he says that word steward is a little different at that point because he's reminding him, you are not the king, you are just a steward. And that's what we are. We're stewards. And we need to remember there is a certain honor to being a steward, but it also is a position of submission and service to one who is greater. So we need to know our place. Now in verse 1, where it says uh, it's better to draw near to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools, perhaps you're wondering, well, what does that mean? What is the sacrifice of fools? What's he talking about there? 
And I have to confess that for a long, long time, I assumed that the sacrifice of fools was just a multitude of words, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's the fool offering his sacrifice because the text has so much to do with words and making vows and it warns us against rash words and, and, uh, and so on. Um, so is that what the sacrifice of fools is? Is it excessive, rash, foolish words? I don't think so anymore. I think the sacrifice of fools is simply vain worship. It's worship that's empty, worship that's ritualistic, formalistic, but with no heart in it. And so the contrast isn't uh, with excessive words. The contrast is with whether we hear or not. He says it's better to draw near to listen That Hebrew word there, it's, it's, it's from the Hebrew word, root word shama, to hear, to listen. And it means not just to audibly perceive, but to hear and to heed. And that's really, what the, that's really the essence of what it means to know our place. It means that We come into the presence of God as His people. He speaks. We listen and obey. That's what it means to know our place. We listen to God's words and then we do them. It's it's what Jesus, I think, was capturing at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Three glorious chapters in Matthew's Gospel of verse after verse after verse of instruction from our Lord Jesus Christ and he sums it all up by saying everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So the sacrifice of fools is to hear those words of the Lord and not do them. That's what Jesus was saying. It's better to go to the It's better to draw near to listen, as in listen in order to heed, listen and to do. And when we do that, then we're showing that we we know our place. Well, next we have uh, mind your words. That's the next point. That's the next imperative. That's the next application. Mind your words. Our words are very central to who we are. The things we say are an expression of our values. Our words have a very strong tendency to reveal our spiritual condition. Now you know and I know that there's no person on earth who can really truly see the heart of another person. You can't know my heart, I can't know your heart. But what our words do is they open up a window to our hearts. 
So on the one hand, we can't know someone else's heart, but when the other person speaks, to some extent they're giving a window on their heart. Your words are so important. They're so central to who we are that the Lord Jesus said that it's by your words that you will be justified and by your words that you'll be condemned. Matthew 12, 37. So our words, our patterns of speech are of tremendous significance. And God's word throughout, and including this passage that we're considering tonight, contains warnings against various kinds of speech. The first would be a warning against rash or hasty words. You see that there in verse uh, 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. So we're warned against rash words. We're warned against hasty words. Similar to what we find, for instance, in Proverbs 29.20. And you know, all the things that the book of Proverbs says about the fool and his terrible state, his terrible outlook. And yet, it says in Proverbs 29.20, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Or consider the words of James in James 1.19. You've heard this many times, I'm sure. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And aren't we often and aren't we naturally exactly the opposite? Quick to speak, but slow really to hear. No, he says, know this, grab hold of this, heed this. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I think in a digital age we could say, let every person be quick to hear and slow to text. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to press send. Proverbs 12.18 speaks of rash words and says they're like sword thrusts. So our text tonight warns us against rash words or hasty words. Another thing it warns us against, secondly, it would be profuse words. Multiplicity of words. Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I remember reading that verse as I was growing up, reading out of the King James, and I've still got those words in my mind, and they, it says in the King James, that verse says, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. In other words, just to put it very crassly and in the common vernacular, the more blah, 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 the more sin. It's just inevitable. And so the text warns us against profuse words and reminds us in that very connection of the creator-creature distinction. That's where he brings it up in this text. He says, remember, God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Verse 3 says, a fool's voice comes with many words. Which is just another way of saying if you hear somebody just run in their mouth, the chances are very good he's a fool. Verse 7 says, When words grow many, there is 
vanity. There's our theme word. When words grow many, there's vanity. So we're warned against rash and hasty words. We're warned against profuse words. But then there's another category of words, category of speech, against which we are sternly warned in this passage. It comes up again and again, and that's uh, vows. We're warned against vows. Not that we're forbidden from taking them, not that we're commanded not to ever take them, but we're warned and cautioned about them. There's repeated references to vows in this text. Well, what is a vow? It's important that we understand that a vow is a kind of heightened speech. And what I mean by that is, we're to be men and women of our word. When we say something, we should mean what we say. But when we vow, it's like we're taking our words, which already ought to be um, something that we are willing to honor, and we're sort of doubling down on our words with, by making a promise or an oath with them. Vows in uh, modern context, like in our day and age, in our culture, when you hear the term vow, we tend to think of things like uh, marriage vows or perhaps a vow of membership in a church or something like that, or think an oath of enlistment or an oath of office in the military. But in the Old Testament, when you see, when you see the term vow, it's not usually talking about things along those lines. In the Old Testament, in Scripture in general, a vow... Uh, usually had mostly to do with some kind of voluntary religious offering or some kind of um, special period of consecration. So you've got in the Old Testament, someone can take the vow of a Nazarite. And what it means is, out of devotion to God, a person is saying, for a certain defined period of time, I am going to especially consecrate my life to God. And they would make a vow to do that. Or, in terms of an offering, they would they'd make a vow that they're going to bring a sacrifice to God. And that's why the text says, when you vow a vow to God, pay it. Don't delay to pay it. In other words, you, you tell the priest, you, you're going to vow three oxen, or whatever. Fill in the blank. But that's sort of how vows work, or how, they're, what, how the term um, works in biblical context, and particularly in Old Testament context in the religious community, which is why what we have in verse 5 and 6 is it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake, because you vowed you're going to pay something, and then if you don't do it, you've broken your oath, you've broken your vow. And that's sin. Failure to pay the vow is sin. And the text says God will chastise you. It doesn't say that the person's going to be cut off from the covenant community, but it says God will be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands, which I think is just a way of saying God will hold you accountable. He will chastise you. He will discipline you. So the problem with vows is, again, in the, in the biblical context, in the Old Testament context, is that Making a vow has tremendous potential for outward religious show. So again, to just borrow vernacular language, um, God is saying, put up or shut up. If you don't intend to pay it, don't even make the vow. You're better off, because no one's holding your feet to the fire making you vow anything. Vows weren't required. 
But he's saying if, you, if you're going to vow, then pay that vow. When I was trying to come up with the, the outline for this sermon and come up with the points, uh, I ended up settling on mind your words, but I was thinking about using watch your mouth. Same kind of thing, but maybe a little bit less, uh, less, uh, less respectful. But I think of uh, Psalm 141, verse 3. The psalmist says, praying to God, having a sensitivity to, to how important it is for us to m- mind our words, and also having a, a sense of his own frailty, his own sinful nature. The psalmist says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. In other words, help me, Lord, help me to guard my lips. Help me to keep watch over the door of my lips, he says. Because he has that sense of the fear of God, and he has that faith that makes him fearful of offending his heavenly Father with his words. But then finally we come to the last point, which is the fear of the Lord. And I want to just say at this point, I want you to make up your minds that you're going to disregard anyone who plays down the notion that God is to be feared. There are a lot of people out there uh, you know, claiming to be Christians, and maybe they are, but they just don't like this idea of the fear of God. It seems antiquated to them. It seems very uh, legalistic. It seems like something that belongs to a people who do kind of grovel before a God they're afraid of. But that's not what the fear of the Lord is. But if anyone tells you that God is not to be feared because we're Christians, uh, disregard that person. People will say God doesn't want us to be afraid of him. And somehow they falsely associate fear of God with Old Testament only. But that's a misunderstanding in a false application, in large part, for instance, of John, uh, 1 John 4, 18, you know, where it says, perfect love casts out fear. And uh, let me just read it to you. 1 John chapter 4, in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Um, We don't take that verse out of context and then just decide that fear of the Lord is not for us. That's not the point that John was making in his letter. In the New Testament and in the Gospel and Christ himself, uh, we find full endorsement of the fear of the Lord. So, for instance, uh, 2 Corinthians. We're going to have to look these up. Uh, Go with me, please, to um, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The apostle saying, we fear the Lord. And because we do, we seek to persuade others to repent of their sins and turn to Christ. If you flip ahead to chapter 7 of that same uh, book, chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Peter 2.17 Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Revelation 19 
verse 5. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So you see, the New Testament speaks of the fear of the Lord for Christians, for people who serve the Lord, who love the Lord, for the saints. And it's not inconsistent with the gospel. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And look at what happened in the church in verse 31. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. You see there how fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit go hand in hand. They're not opposed to each other. They fit hand in glove. But then the words, the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ, look at what he had to say about the fear of God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Verses four and five. I tell you, my friends, Speaking to his friends now, his disciples. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So the fear of the Lord is not inconsistent with forgiveness. In fact, as we didn't do as good a job as I would have liked pointing this out, but you know, our, our assurance of pardon this morning Spoke of there is forgiveness with you, Lord, that you may be feared. See, the person who has no forgiveness can't fear the Lord, doesn't fear the Lord, but the person who has received mercy from Christ through the gospel then can fear the Lord. The fear of God is the reverential caution that we're enjoined to in uh, verse 1 of our text tonight. The fear of God bears in mind the majesty and the holiness of God. He's in heaven, we're on earth. The fear of God seeks in love to please Him as opposed to, uh, in our text this evening, uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 6. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? The fear of God in the context of Ecclesiastes, really is the conclusion of the matter. When we get to the end of Ecclesiastes, he's going to say, after all has been said and done, what's the conclusion of the matter? Fear God and keep His commandments. And at this very structurally significant point in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher kind of gives us a sneak peek. He gives us a hint at what his conclusion is going to be. Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord or the fear of God is really just another term for genuine faith. Some generations ago, it was very common to refer to a person who really was a true believer, who really had genuine faith as a God-fearing man, God-fearing woman. We don't use that language as much anymore. A lot of people in our culture who call themselves Christians don't like that term. They don't like the notion of the fear of God because they want to be chummy with God. But in biblical terms, to be in Christ is to fear God. 
A person who fears the Lord will know his place. A person who fears the Lord will be in awe of God's holiness, but he'll also be in awe, she'll also be in awe of God's grace. And we'll truly be able to say God's grace is amazing. A person who fears the Lord will guard his heart and his lips, will be a man of his word, whose yes is yes and whose no is no. Now the wicked will cower in fear. They'll have that kind of fear when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. But believers don't cower. They don't cringe with fear of God. For the Christian, the fear of God means having a profound reverence for Him, a holy reverence that remembers who God is, that cherishes God's fatherly love and cringes at the thought of offending Him. Again, this is not a fear that we might lose our salvation. It's a love for God that is careful and zealous to do what pleases Him and abhors the thought of doing otherwise. And if that's the disposition of your heart, rejoice and be glad because it's a sign that God's grace is at work in you. It's a sign that you love your Heavenly Father and you want to please Him. To borrow the words of the hymn we're about to sing, in our flesh we don't serve, we don't fear the Lord as we ought. We don't in our flesh, in and of ourselves, we don't bow before His majesty. We're careless and we're heartless in our words and in our actions, and our thoughts continually stray into vanity and sin. But by the grace of God, we come to cherish the fact that God is with us, and He creates this holy fear, the fear of the Lord in us. That's the work of Christ, something He does for us through the Holy Spirit. May He grant to all of us the grace of holy fear. Let's pray. <coughs> Father in heaven, we pray You'd fill us with the fear of You, that godly fear that all of our uh, forefathers in the faith had. May we have it in great measure, and may we serve You in love, and we pray that this would all be to the glory of, of your Son, our Savior, who has put in us the fear of the Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.